Welcome to this latest edition of The Delivery Profits, brought to you by TheDelivery.World, together with Avico. I'm Peter Backman, and today, together with John Borzacchiello and our special guest, Neil Seba, we'll talk about delivery in general and ways to make it accessible and profitable. And no doubt we'll get on to other topics too, as we try to get a deep understanding of the forces shaping this rapidly evolving sector. We're so grateful for all of you out there who tune in regularly for this podcast. Without you, we're just a bunch of guys and gals talking to each other in a recording studio. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Your ratings and reviews mean the world to us and help more people discover our content. Plus, it's the best way to show your appreciation for the hard work the Delivery.World team, the Avico team, and our fabulous guests put into each and every episode. So go ahead, hit that five-star button, full instructions in the show notes, and let's get started with today's fantastic episode. But before we get really stuck in, John, my children are off my hands, so there's no more going back to school languish, um, concern over exam results, deciding what career to follow, all those sort of guests uh, things. I know these are still things you have to cope with, and maybe your life is more complicated as a result. What do you think? Well, Peter, they've been back at school now, what, three, four weeks. I've got Charlie that's nine, Harry that's six. So they're off my hands after the summer holiday is the way I look at it. Back into education, back learning, and actually enjoying school, back with their friends. Although, as you'll be aware, um, Harry's come home with a cough, which normally happens when they're all back to school, all intermingling, having a good time. Um, yeah, it's nice. But can't we tell autumn's coming now? It's uh, it's getting dark at night. I ordered the logs last night, ready for the log burner. So, uh, Yes, I, I know it's, when it's autumn when my wife says to me as I'm coming home, it's dark tonight, um, as if this is the first time it's happened. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Not time to put the heating on yet, though, Peter. I'll uh, make sure. The, the 1st of October. Yeah. That's oh. when it goes on. Ooh, I'm going to uh, hold on for a little bit longer if I can. Oh, right. Okay, well, you're <laughs> coping with the uh, electricity bills is, is a challenge nowadays as well. Absolutely. Definitely. So um, it's probably time to get the show on the road. Um, I'll set the scene with some additional thoughts that we can all discuss and perhaps pull apart. I got to know our guest today when we both realised we were collecting highly detailed data. In our case, it was all about data that measured the impact of working from home. That's by way of introducing the topic of data. The delivery business spews out data, gigabytes a day, and yet very little gets published about the business in aggregate. How big it is, how many users it has, whether they're regulars or irregulars, who are the leaders, both delivery companies and operators, how many sites offer delivery, regular restaurants and ghost kitchens. How are these things changing? And much more goes unreported or only partially reported when some company issues a press release in support of some activity. I know that some of this information is confidential, but in aggregate it isn't. In aggregate, it can just tell you about the sector as a whole. I also know that some of the information may be sensitive. Perhaps it highlights an issue that some people think ought to be hidden. But, as the saying goes, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Why would anybody want the data? Well, I can think of several reasons. 
people seeking a career might like to know how restaurant delivery compares with competing sectors. Do today's trends point to better long-term employment prospects, for example? And another reason. Suppliers definitely want to know what opportunities await them in the delivery sector. Suppliers of things like fries, and thank you, uh, Avico, uh, or packaging or equipment for ghost kitchens, the more they like uh, what they see, the more resources they'll plough into the sector and the better service operators will get. And another reason. Restaurants that are uncertain about the prospects in restaurant delivery, and believe me, there are still plenty, rely on what they are told by the companies actively seeking their business. While I've no doubt there is nothing wrong with the data, I venture that it is partial. In all these examples, data will certainly have more, most credibility when it is available in aggregate and not partially. So there is a place for more aggregated and comprehensive data about the restaurant delivery business. Maybe I should start providing it. <laughs> what, what an opportunity, Peter. Yes, I've created it. It's like a new world, isn't it? And when when we talk about data, for me, it's really interesting what you were saying there from different points of view. From my own point of view from Avico mm. is we make fries that are for home delivery, for deliveries out of restaurants. So what an important way for a supplier. But then we look at the aggregators, um, the Just Eats, the Deliveroo's, the Uber Eats of this world. They hold the data and this comes back to what we were talking about on our last episode of who is the boss in the relationship? Is it the restaurant owner? Is it the aggregator? How does the relationship marry up? And it always comes back to this same thing, data, and who is the king of holding that data? Um, yes, I think you're right to a, to a degree, but I think, yes, data is important, and, and, you know, I've just made a case for it. But I also think that there are other issues to do with um, transparency, to do with um, the uh, search for profitability, the, the share of revenue that goes to the various parties in, in the whole um, ecosphere that would, uh, is delivery. Um, but um, I, I, I think data is important, yes, absolutely. Maybe our guest uh, will support me or maybe he won't. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, it's it's such a wide word, though, isn't it? The word data, like you say, it has so many meanings for so many different people. And what is the actual key facts that people are looking for? The restaurateurs are obviously wanting it because it, it, it's their food, it's their offering. The delivery aggregators are wanting it because they're wanting to know where the food is, where there is an opportunity. The suppliers, the da, 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 it goes on and on, Peter, doesn't it? But Ultimately, what is the data? Where does that? And that's what's worth digging into, I think, a little bit. Right. Well, if you and I dig into that now, we're not going to be able to talk to our guests. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so so let, let's let's introduce uh, uh, Neil. Neil Seba, welcome. Thank you. Um, Neil is the managing director of Tost. Um, for those of you who don't know Tost, and we have an international um, listenership, so. Um, not everybody will be familiar with TOST, um, but maybe you can give us a 30-second rundown on TOST so that, just to um, get the context right. Sure, no problem. Um, so TOST is, uh, we, we operate under a strapline of food to make you feel good. Uh, everything we make in our store, you order at a tablet, be that your own phone or at a tablet in one of the stores. Predominantly, we sell fresh made-to-order salads, wraps, smoothies, juices and hot food. 
Um, everything is fresh made to order, as I say. So the idea being it's healthy because it's time between being an ingredient and being in the bowl is as limited as possible. Create some interesting dynamics when you talk about delivery, of course, because there's an extra time delay there. But right. So. Okay. So um, you've mentioned delivery. Um, what's in your background or possibly the background of Tost, but let's look at your background, um, that got you into delivery in the very first place? I mean, I've been with the brand Tost for 14, 15 years, um, and since before delivery probably even really existed. So I've only really operated in it with this brand. Um, it was a smallish part of the business pre-COVID. Um, and then when we restarted the business in the first lockdown, I think it was, it was basically our only business because we had nobody in central London, no office workers, no residents. Everybody was was locked up at home. So we were trialling a delivery-only model. Obviously, that wasn't what we wanted to do, but that's that's where we started our business. Um, um, when you started during COVID, um, doing delivery, or you weren't start, you didn't start. You you were developing your delivery model. Were there were there um, com- significant differences between what you had been doing prior to COVID and what you started doing immediately COVID started? Or was it just a question of rolling it out? I think in terms of the underlying product, it was the same, uh, broadly the same. Obviously, everything we were operating in during a COVID lockdown was very different and we were dealing with a different firefight on any given day. So I wouldn't isolate any of that being down to delivery. It was more down to whatever the regulations were at the time and, you know, can people stand close to each other to produce stuff and how do you operate a store in a safe way? We actually had, you know, two different teams running shops. So one would do lunchtime and a totally different team would do evening. So if there was a case in one team, then, you know, the other team could drop in and, and that kind of thing. So we were we were operating in obviously a, what feels like a very different environment to now, thank goodness. And and there's almost like a bit of a funny, bad dream, I suppose. But Well, it is. And let, oh, gosh, I hope we just hope we don't have to ever revisit it. Not quite. Um, I don't know if we could. <laughs> um, but anyway, so... Um, COVID, you were doing delivery, COVID came along and and it changed it because it was your lifeline. Yep. Um, and then what happened? Well, delivery, as I said, at the start of, of COVID, I suppose, was our business. And then and then as the as the the lockdowns eased and then came back in and so on and so forth, the delivery was kind of a constant presence in the business. And I think the, I actually pulled the data, we'll come back to data in a minute. Uh, I pulled the data uh, earlier today just to have a little look. And once we got up to a critical number of shops, the kind of number we've got now, we've got, we've got, we seem to have 12. So I think we got up to nine or 10 fairly quickly. Once we had that number of shops with that kind of central London radius covered, the delivery numbers have actually been remarkably consistent across the whole, whether we were in a lockdown, we were not in a lockdown, whatever. And it's, it's interesting when you talk about the data because from our perspective, the power doesn't sit with the with the restaurateur. It sits with the delivery platform in the sense that we don't even know who we're supplying to. So if we were selling 400 delivery, I don't know what the numbers were, but 400 delivery orders one week, and then we were in lockdown, we're still doing 400. You assume you're not sending them to offices anymore. You must be sending them to people's homes, but you didn't know. All you know is it's coming out of that same store in Clerkenwell and it's going to people. Um, and so we never knew. So we've always been operating in a little bit of darkness. And I think that continues to be the case. Some of the reasons uh, that you alluded to, I think the the operators are quite protective of, of their customers and as in which brands they have and obviously which customers they've earned onto their platform. And there's reasons why they do that. But it is quite difficult as an operator to know whether you're really hitting the target market you want to go after, how you would change that and whether you're doing better or worse than your competitors. You just don't really know. You just kind of operate. 
With regard to, Neil, um, you say you opened in the first lockdown, so it was a delivery-only model. Was there a lot of support from the aggregators to you as a business opening and really going for it with that? And how does that compare to let's fast forward to today and the support they give you? What what could the aggregators give you more to enhance your business? Uh, at the start, um, whenever it was, when did we start? September 2020. The, the market was still relatively close. We, we tried to get back and open quite quickly. Um, and... Um, yeah, so they were supportive of that. Um, I mean, the economics not necessarily any different to what they are now. Um, and in terms of support we get now, they're, they're all fairly supportive of what we're doing. They're happy to have us on the platform. They're happy to provide us with data, with a lot of data about how our individual brand performs, what our order volumes are, which stores, you know, where the tablets are off, all this kind of data. But it's very insular on us. So we can see if we have an operating problem, but we can't necessarily tell if we have a marketing problem. And that... We then have to discuss with our account manager, you know, it's you know, you get an email, you're up five percent this week. Okay, is that good or bad? I've no idea. Um, and you get some anecdotal comments, but of course the the world moves so fast and they're happy that, you know, they're they're focusing on their overall whole as well. So I think I think you you don't you certainly don't know more than you should don't know, if that makes sense. Like you were saying, you, you want to grow your business. So if you do a marketing campaign, you want to know, has that been successful? How could we improve on that? How ultimately can we bring more customers to TOST? Yes. And and if the aggregators, and Pete, this goes back to what we've said before, is yes, they'll give you what you want to know, but what? how do we get to this place where actually what the restaurateur needs to know from the aggregator along with the consumer, some joined up thinking somewhere... You get some campaign feedback. So if you do like a, a promotion on an item at, I don't know, 20% over over 20 pounds or whatever it might be that you're running, they will give you the data on how many click-throughs you got on that banner ad, okay. whether it was successful. So you will get your granular, granularity performance on that advert. Of course, you still don't really know whether that's good or bad. Um, it's quite difficult, but, it, but I'm not sure that's any different to your walk-in sales. Like if our walk-in sales are up 20% this week, do we know, if it, is it because it's sunny? Is it because people have gone back to work because there was a chief strike last year and there isn't one this year? Whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, I mean, to your original point about it, there's a lot of data out there and working out what's important to you and how you analyse it and how you move forward with it or not just spend your whole time looking at a spreadsheet is, is quite tricky. Um, and perhaps delivery, they have too much data. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, there's, there's undoubtedly a vast amount of data. Um, a date... Um, being nerdy about it, those are individual numbers. Um, putting numbers together so that they provide you with information mm. is more challenging. And then having that information and having it within a wider context is, I guess, what the sort of thing that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, and, and you've made the point that, yes, it applies to delivery, but it applies to your own business as well. But what you have in your work, walk-in business is you see the customers, you see whether they're smiling or whether they're coming in rain-sodden um, clothes or, or whatever. Um, but if, if you, all your, um, your total view of the information is what you see on a spreadsheet or on a printout, isn't the same help uh, in understanding what's going on? No, because you don't really understand what that buying decision was based on. So you don't know, really know how to market to it. So I don't know whether that £50 order went to a very small office who was decided they were buying it by the, the office manager or to a family of four. Right. Mm. And it's a totally different buying process, isn't it? Of course. 
Um, you know, we opened into the evening, which pre-COVID we, we virtually never did with any of our stores. And we do decent numbers on delivery in the evening now. But we don't really know who we're selling it to. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can change the subject slightly, and we can always return to this anyway, unless John's got anything immediate that he wants to ask. Um, I'm very intrigued by um, the, the fact that um, you, you do a lot of fundraising um, through uh, greenhouse sports uh, and other things. And that says to me, you're being a good um, corporate citizen. You're, you're aware of the world and you're doing the right thing. Um, how does that get expressed in delivery? Um, will you be doing more of it because of delivery or will you just be doing more of it or will you be doing less of it? I mean, I'm just interested in how it all fits into um, the delivery space and what you're doing generally. Well, um, I'm not sure that the delivery space and the, I mean, the corporate social responsibility side of things is such an open, wide field. In terms of the actual charitable fundraising that we're doing, I'm not sure the two necessarily interplay particularly. Um, you know, we partner with a, with a charity that we care deeply about, Greenhouse Sports, who um, provide um, sporting uh, events for, for children out after, after school clubs think about that so to stop children falling on the wrong side of the tracks I suppose they get to go and play basketball and table tennis and that kind of stuff which which we, we care a lot about um, I've done quite a lot of running events for them this year including running between our shops at which point I decided that it really would be better if we didn't have a delivery kitchen over in Canary Wharf because it's an awfully long way to run to shop number two but anyway um, how yes so how delivery interplays with that I don't know other than other than raising the profile of the brand and getting us to guess that we wouldn't otherwise um, be part of we don't actively promote anything different from a social corporate social responsibility side on delivery than we would in the store anyway we use the same packaging which is sourced in the same sort of the best way that we can um, we kind of operate everything on a motto which I won't claim as my own which Angelina is my business partners which is if we can we should Mm, good um, one. I hear what you're saying um, about getting this message into the delivery space. Is that something that you can do, you would like to do, you have thought about? Um, if, I'm a, if I'm getting um, a product from Tost, do I know that you are supporting initiatives? It's a good question. I, I don't know if you know. You probably only know if you browse the website of the underlying operator that you go on or you're on the social media or whatever. I don't think Deliveroo or Uber Eats' platform or, or Just Eat give much scope for... I mean, you want to get your main message out there, which is this is a healthy, fresh meal. You probably don't... You know, you're going to swamp it with information about all sorts of facets of your business. Probably not. So the answer is probably probably no. They probably also don't know that we've got five-star EHO scores on the doors because what they're looking for is, I want that. That looks tasty. I've ordered it. I suppose you could uh, speculate, though, that um, a lot of your customers are interested in your support. And, and it's not only Tost. I mean, lots of other yeah, of businesses also supporting all sorts of um, activities. Um, and that uh, will, it, to a degree, influence people actually walking into a, a restaurant, I guess. Yeah. Um, so shouldn't it also influence customers who actually buy the product? Uh, through a delivery platform, shouldn't shouldn't there be some mechanism on delivery platforms for telling the world that you support um, greenhouse sports, for example? Yes, I don't, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. It's not something I've ever thought about before, but yes, I think I think the reason there isn't is because the platforms are quite narrow in the way that they're built and the way that the menus are built up. But um, 
but yeah, I think there's all sorts of scope for different information around food safety, around charitable endeavours. I guess, I guess it's a question for for the platforms as to why they don't offer that scope. But, uh, I don't know. Really interesting what you're saying, Neil, because I've just been thinking about the things EHO scores. Really important. You know, when you go to a restaurant, people actually look at an EHO mm-hmm. score. They look at scores on the doors. They look actually around. Is that business a sustainable business? How, what are they doing for sustainability? Like yourself, what are they doing for charity? And actually, it does come back down to the platforms. What can they offer you? Because these are messages that I'm sure people want to know. People make life choices because of sustainability, because of um, scores on the doors, for example. So it, it's a really interesting point that actually the platforms could use this in a different way. And this is important information for a business owner of how do I get someone into my business? Yeah, I've, I've, I've worked a couple of stints with one of our providers as delivery as a delivery rider. Some of the places the food is coming from, it's um, you know, it's they have the minimum health standards, and and that's fine. But yeah, I think it's for certain guests, it, it should be of interest. It definitely should be of interest. Um, so, so changing the subject again, um, do you operate um, uh, dark kitchens in any form? So we toyed with the idea pre-COVID. We didn't do it. We and then we um, we took a store in uh, near Canary Wharf that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's not a dark kitchen. I would describe it as a light kitchen in that it's a shop. Uh, it's in a residential area, so it doesn't have an awful lot of walk-in. It's not our main type of location. Um, it exists predominantly to serve delivery to the Canary Wharf area, um, but without being, I don't want my team working in a dark kitchen. If I won't work that myself, I don't really want somebody else to work there so I just don't really go in for the dark kitchen things no slight on anyone that does that's you know everyone makes their own choices but um, our our inverted commas dark kitchen has a view of uh, the dome so I prefer that (laughs) yeah absolutely Um, look after the staff well yes it's it's hard enough to retain people as it is so uh, (laughs) let's not put them in a box (laughs) with with regard to your split Neil we've, we've been talking a lot about delivery but going back to your restaurants the restaurants are where people can see the food they can order it on a tablet they've got the atmosphere of the staff you get to understand them a little bit how can how can you transfer that in the future to delivery because we all know it's on an upward scale it's not going anywhere uh, and what you say is well i've been into a toss and you see all food and it's fresh and you, it looks fantastic when you order on an app you never get the same when you delivered how can you as a business portray that to your consumers i think it's very difficult with the um with the the tools that you have available in the on the platform ordering, you've got the food photography, but I mean that's food photography. It doesn't necessarily have to portray the reality of, of what's going on. I suppose there's probably. I mean, I would again. I don't. I don't have the data, so I don't know. But I expect there's a large volume of people who've either ordered from us before or have ordered from us in a store, so they know what they're getting, or someone else in their business has done so, or in their family that is sponsoring that purchase. Um, I don't know how many people will order blind from a dark kitchen type operator which they've never experienced and no one's ever recommended or that maybe they take a chance because it's on offer and and they like the food so they keep coming back but it is frustrating because we have such a sort of vibrant fresh open kitchen thing going on where we're making everything in a few minutes and it's quick and it's fast and all that kind of stuff and you know if you're ordering a delivery platform and it's going to take 20 minutes to arrive 17 of those minutes probably weren't us but you know it's still that experience right so um it is a challenge it's definitely a challenge 
but there's a big market. It's not just the um, delivery Ubers of this world. You've got the, the city pantries, the feeders, the corporate delivery is a massive, for us in central London, there's a massive part of our business that never existed pre-COVID um, because there's this, I sort of hesitate to use this phrase in public forum, but to some extent corporate bribery going on in the sense that let's all go back to the office. If we're all on Tuesdays, we'll get everybody lunch, that kind of approach through these platforms. Believe me, I'm not complaining about it. It's great. <laughs> but it's a really interesting dynamic because it didn't exist at all really pre-COVID and now it's really quite a big part of the business. Yeah, uh, we've spoke about that before, haven't we? That um, It's not just about home delivery anymore. It's about delivery to offices, delivery to workplaces, delivery to open spaces Yeah, where, where people can actually enjoy it with their friends. So there's so much there for you yeah. to, to go forward on, isn't there? Yeah, some some of I don't think we I don't think not sure our partners do it, but I've seen some where you can order with the what three words to a yeah, as you say to an open space. Mm -hmm. This I'm in this square in the park. Please come find me. It's, yes. it's, it's very clever. I don't know how much take up it goes, but it's clever. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I I heard of somebody who was fishing um, a mile and a half from a road, and he ordered his lunch that way, and um, it arrived very cold because the rider had to get off his bike and then walk through the woods. Yeah, um, but. I mean, we don't we don't sell a huge amount. So we do sell hot food, but we don't sell a huge proportion of it. I do wonder how much the consumer is prepared to tolerate a lower standard of or lower quality of product. Not quality of the underlying product, but you know, standard of the way it's delivered because of the fact that they accept that it's been on a twenty minute journey. Um, but I guess that's not uncommon, right? Even from the days of just ordering a pizza through a well known operator, it's always. I think that's one of the trade offs. But there are also people who are working very hard to deliver the product. That is going, it's going to be good quality when it actually arrives. Yes. Um, um, well, we have the, we have the debate. I mean, as 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 you know from the name of our business, right? And if you go into our store, we will we will finish the salad by mixing all the ingredients in the bowl and and, and dressing it and finishing it. Um, we don't do that on delivery because we feel like it compromises the quality of the product because the dressing deteriorates the, the ingredients. So then, actually, if you get one of our salads from Tosta, it's not a Tosta salad. Well, that, does that make sense? Well, it, I don't know, but it, it protects the quality of what you've bought. So that's why we do it. So do you serve like you're dressing in a pot yeah. with the side? So again, that that's really interesting. That's a huge thing for delivery. And we talk, we've had operators in where we've spoken about the quality of the food getting cold, etc. But you made a really good point. If it's on someone's backpack and it's sloshing up and down for 15, 20 minutes as they're riding through London, yeah. is you've took those steps to make sure your delivery customers are getting an experience the same or similar True. to install. True, but then you'll get some guests who say, well, it wasn't even finished. <laughs> so, you know, you can't, you'll have, you you, can't for, for, for every nine that understands you, you have one who thinks that you've given them a subpar experience. It's like, but I, I, we did that to try and protect your eating quality, like you say. But it comes down to, you know, fresh made smoothies, they'll separate on a journey. You can't do much about that other than sort of people know they should shake them. But I mean, it's... Um, Hot food's really challenging. Hot food's really challenging. So um, we've we've covered quite a lot of ground in a fairly short period of time. Um, uh, and I don't mean to um, wrap up at this stage, but I'm interested to know where we think um, delivery may be going in the next six months, the next six years. Uh, is it is it here forever? Is it not going to change? Is it going to change fundamentally? These are all big issues that I know are concerning an awful lot of people. And I'm just interested if we can explore that for a few minutes. I don't know if you have any views, Neil, on what might be happening. I mean, 
uh, having gone through the sort of explosion that we went through at the start of COVID and then and it being basically 100% of our business for a while. And, and thankfully, the, the core bit of the business growing back on top of it without compromising it too much because we thought it might be a bit yin and yang. It's sort of evidence that it is here to stay. And when you run the numbers, you have a fairly consistent level of turnover and order numbers um, throughout the last, at least the last two years since we've had enough shops. Um, and it and it makes it a fundamental part of when we're assessing a new store location. How can we make the P&L work if it's not a store that adds incrementally to delivery? So, for example, we're about to open a store down on the South Bank, down, down the London Bridge, that has a whole new delivery radius on Deliveroo. So we're comfortable that we're going to get some incremental sales that will support the store P&L. If we open a sixth store in the square mile, we can't offer it any delivery because we're already covered. So that makes it a far harder equation on the on the store P&L. So it, it's really front and centre of, of our dynamics. I don't think that the overall number will change. I think the platforms will ebb and flow. I think the corporate thing might tail off a little bit as people start to find their office level normality, uh, especially if there's more of a sort of crunch in that respect. But broadly, I think, you know, it's convenient and people are obviously happy with the quality of what they're receiving or they wouldn't continue to order it. Um, yeah, I think it's here to stay. I, I don't know how, I don't know if it explodes or whether it's just that it's getting to more people at the moment and that's why it's still growing. But you made an, you made an interesting point to me anyway, that the decision to open a store may depend on its ability to do delivery. Um, and that presumably is a financial consideration. In other words, um, if we open this store and it doesn't do delivery, is it going to make us money? Yeah. Um, uh, and it could be that you decide that it's not going to work because you're not doing delivery from it. It's also um, even more nuanced than that, I think, is that to the point you were making earlier about visibility and data... If I look at a new store location in an area of London that I don't currently service, I can go and stand outside at lunchtime for a few lunchtimes and see the footfall and look at the people and see whether they look like our kind of people. And obviously you can pull data on offices around and all that kind of stuff. It's very difficult to forecast what the delivery number is going to be. Uh, the delivery partners will try and help you, but they, but not, not with any great level of detail or indeed certainly any level of certainty. So you're shooting blind on what's quite an important part of your P&L. Um, it's it should be incremental sales. You it's it's hard to make a full delivery PL stack up for us, but um but it's certainly very important to success or failure. Well, well you could ma- you could make it stack up if you just had a dark kitchen, but you've you've explained your position on that. Well, it's also partly partly for that and partly but from a even from the one with the light kitchen that we operate, the margin side of things is much harder to stack up on delivery for for obvious reasons. So So um the amount that you're charged fundamentally it, it helps to decide whether you should be opening a restaurant or not, yeah. being crude about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a top-up for us. It's a top-up revenue stream, a big top-up revenue stream, but it's at much lower margin. So um, so we couldn't, you know, we can't stack up the, the pin on it very easily by itself unless you were in an absolute dead cert delivery area, which, you know, even Canary Wharf is, it can, be, can have weeks where it's a challenge. Really interesting that, Neil, when you come to the delivery piece and, what fascinates me, talking from you today and listening to what you're saying and talking to other operators of the platforms are charging a percentage and everyone charges a different percentage and everyone needs to make money. But surely to give a little bit back to businesses so they can then operate in areas that aren't as successful, they can make it work for everyone. 
You would certainly think so. Really <laughs> interesting, Peter. That one as it well. It is, isn't it? It's a, yeah. it's a very good point. I'm fairly sure if you skewed the, um, if you look through the percentages ac- across the size of the brands, you might find some interesting patterns emerging as well. Definitely. <laughs> so we, we've got a future where there is delivery, um, is going to ebb and flow. We've identified some improvements like better, more. Um, uh, visible data or data that gives you a, a better visibility. We've talked about the opportunity to open more uh, restaurants by getting the um, the numbers right. Um, I th- I, that says to me some sort of not necessarily hugely dynamic market, but a market that is um, suitable for evolution. So it will be different in three years' time. Definitely. It's... Uh Today's been very eye-opening, Neil, very eye-opening. It's been uh, interesting how you operate with your light kitchen, the delivery model that you use. It's a big part of top-up to your business, but there's something missing. There's something missing somewhere, and it's putting your finger on that. So, again, I'd I'd like to change the subject again, Um, and and that is one of the um, underlying um, principles of delivery, if you like, is technology. It wouldn't work without technology. Um, and the, uh, the application of technology, as, as I've said many, many times, um, is in a sense problematic in the, in the restaurant industry because that is all about hospitality. It's all about personal interaction. And technology, in a sense, is the antithesis of that. Um, so I'm interested to know how restaurants such as yours businesses such as yours cope with technology whether it's in the front or it's in the back um, of your mind anyway uh, when when it comes to um, how you operate generally and how you operate in the delivery space so technology how do you cope with it well we've always been quite aggressively sort of forward thinking slash embracing it I suppose um, I don't know if you know, but we were actually the first um, restaurant business in Europe to go completely cashless with the ordering points. So the, one, the, the kind of kiosk ordering points that you see in, well, everywhere now, all the, all the household brands, uh, from McDonald's down, I suppose. Um, That's amazing. The, we were the first people amazing. to go live with that um, in 2016. I think there was one business, Panera Bread, in the US that had done it just before us. Uh, we developed it with our EPOS provider at the time. Um, and it was really exciting to pioneer that. Very, very difficult to pioneer something like that, especially when you're a fairly small brand, but a hugely uh, valuable experience. Much easier to be second. Um, and um, But we did that fundamentally because we needed to move. Everybody thought we were trying to cut labour. Actually, we weren't trying to cut labour. We had a problem because we were ordering at the till. Uh, someone was plugging all the orders, sending it to the kitchen. Someone in the kitchen was making it, and it was inherently inefficient. We needed to move all our labour resource onto production to be able to serve people in the very narrow lunchtime window that is our prime trading window uh, in central London. And you know, it's been proven to be the right thing to do in the sense, from an operator perspective and an accuracy perspective as well, so the guests are getting what they want. But it is a very, very difficult thing to get right, um, and very difficult to get the service right. I think one thing we've always tried to ensure that we do is we have a host role uh, they're responsible for making sure that the uh, the orchestra of the guests walking around the shop is operating properly everybody knows what they're doing if you need help or you kind of walk in vacantly and not quite sure what, what's going on that that you know where to go 
um, and that the click and collect orders know where they're going, delivery drivers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's very important to us. Obviously, it's become easier and easier for us to have it in our stores because everybody else is doing it too. Uh, and everybody else has sort of worked out that it helps them as well. I think it's really interesting when you get to see operators that primarily were doing grab and go, also doing um, tablet ordering. I can't, for that, so that becomes really quite um, quite something. For us, it was always about having the labour labor deployed in the right place, which is making the orders as quickly as possible, because fundamentally our USP, a fresh made to order, is also our biggest challenge. Um, but we're quite unique in that respect. Most people have given up trying to do fresh made to order, I think. <laughs> John, as a as a chef by training, by background, did you ever think you would be talking about tech in your professional life, or is it a natural? Is it an obvious one? I didn't. If I go back to when I trained as a chef, which was quite a while ago now, um, no. When when te- technology has always been there, hasn't it? Technology has evolved over the years. Whether whether it's from something as simple as a waitress writing an order at your table years and years ago at pubs that you, you don't get anymore. It's either done on an iPad or you go to a till and order. So the order goes through to the kitchen by printer. So technology has evolved. But what you guys have done at TOS is actually game-changing because there was a, a real reason behind why you needed to do it, what you needed to achieve. And now you're seeing the results of that. Uh, and you're also seeing uh, other people in the industry doing the same thing, having the touch points, can you so the app? Do you have you have the app, don't you, yeah. where they can order? Does that integrate into your system as well, into the same EPOS? And how does, I guess, a third-party platform also plug into that? Uh, well, it comes down to which EPOS you're using. Okay. Uh, we actually changed EPOS providers um, when we started again after COVID, um, and uh, yeah, one of the one of the primary reasons for moving was that the tech that they had was device agnostic. So whether you were ordering on your mobile phone, your laptop, or indeed on one of our tablets in the store, it looks exactly the same, the same loyalty, you know, the same everything. And that was very important to us from a, from a customer facing. How well that EPOS then integrates with the delivery platforms and all that kind of stuff, it, it depends on where they are on that particular journey. Ours is, is, is pretty well integrated. They're, they're very good. So, um, um, yeah, if, if you're with the right provider, I think it, it helps. And it's become less... When we first started down that journey, it was sort of almost proprietary between us and our EPOS provider at the time. That's obviously become less of a thing. It's more down to the you know, it's the EPOS company's software, and you buy it and badge it up yourself, much like you effectively do on Deliveroo's ordering platform. Is it's it's got your livery on it. Um, but you but you know we work with them. As Vitamojo we use now, we work we work with them very closely on development. We like pioneering new stuff with them, and um, yeah, we have, we have a really good relationship. And you end up with the right the right results, hopefully. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of angles on tech that um, uh, are still in their infancy that I don't know whether they, you know, the kiosk ordering points is, is much more developed, but there's a lot of things I remember, Peter, I know you're talking at, at lunch later in the week, as am I. And I remember last year there getting sort of people coming up to me talking about like operational tech that will video how your team are moving around the store and how they're moving efficiently and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of think... I don't know whether that stuff will take... I get the principle, but I don't know whether that stuff will take off because apart from anything else, I feel like the team would resign if, if you, <laughs> if you <laughs> turned it on, right? <laughs> yeah. You walked from there to there very inefficiently. Um, it might be a step too far, but there's huge potential with AI and uh, robotic arms, all these kind of things. They sound very exciting, but I don't know. The guest-facing stuff has always been the most interesting for so, us. So the customer is paramount. The um, staff are hugely important. 
Um, tech has got its take its place in the queue, I guess. So, um, but, but tech can also be, like you say, very helpful. A, a booking reservation system now, and and there's lots of them that can be used by consumers for, as it, open table. What a classic one is, you can just go on your phone and book a number of restaurants. But there's also, I was talking to a, a lady a couple of years ago, Amber from Bums on Seats, and they actually work with restaurants for their bookings. And the booking systems they use enable restaurants to make sure that actually we've got Christmas dates we need to fill. And that's the technology that helps restaurateurs. That's actually giving them something and it's a real valuable thing that they can see rather than just something of what's in the future. So we started with data. We've ended with tech. In between, we've talked about um, being a good corporate citizen. Uh, We've talked about... um, light stroke dark kitchens and we've talked about the future of delivery so um question for you neil is there anything that we haven't yet said that you think ought to be said in this space is there anything you want to mention about tost that you haven't uh no no i don't think so i think um you know we're operating in a it's still a, a hugely dynamic marketplace i think uh being a central london operator is potentially been the worst place to be for the last three years for for many reasons in terms of sort of COVID unwind and strikes and all that kind of stuff. And I know they're, you know, we're sitting in a train station. The irony is not lost on me. Um, but um, yeah, I think uh, it's really exciting. I walked over I walked over the bridge from, from Charing Cross to come here and you see the city moving again. Um, and it, and it's, it's a, it's a, it feels like a better time to be, uh, to be in the city and, and to be trading and, and finding our way forwards. And I'm, I'm hugely excited about seeing everything sort of reemerging. Um, that's a very positive note to to end um neil uh, if anybody wants to find out about tost they can go to your website yep they can which is tostuk.com and if they want to find out about you you're on linkedin and and all those i can't imagine why they would but there's a there's very few neil sebbers in the world i think the other one is a guitarist in america and that's not me so uh, okay you can work out which is which so thank you very much um So a big thank you to Neil for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today uh, and all the very best. Thank you. Here's a reminder that whether you're a delivery company, a marketplace app, a technology company, a restaurant owner, investor, or simply someone who loves to order takeout, the delivery profits is the perfect way to stay informed and ahead of the curve in the world of food delivery. You'll find the delivery profits on Spotify, Apple, Google, or the other places where you normally get your podcasts. And please support the show by leaving a five-star rating. Your ratings and reviews help more people discover our content. There are full instructions in the show notes. And there's more about the delivery profits at www.thedelivery.world forward slash the delivery profits. Tune in to the next edition of The Delivery Profits for the insights, interviews and analysis that will keep you ahead of the game in this exciting and ever-evolving industry. So it's goodbye from today's Delivery Profits. That's me and John and Neil. Goodbye. Goodbye.